Welcome to the Omfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. I'm Taylor Pierce, economist of OMFIF's Economic and Monetary Policy Institute. The topic of today's podcast is financial globalization and the risk of geopolitical fragmentation. Geopolitical tensions were apparent even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, clearly evident in Trump's trade war with China and exacerbated by prolonged supply chain disruptions due to the pandemic and surrounding policy measures. While there is no broad consensus on the trajectory of globalization, some economists have already argued that we're entering, or have already entered, an era of deglobalization. Here with me to discuss this topic today is Dr. Max Costelli, Head of Strategy, Sovereign Institutions at UBS Asset Management, and Philip Salman, also on the team at UBS. Welcome, Max and Philip. It's a pleasure to have you both. Thank you very much for the invitation. My first question for you both, maybe I'll start with you, Max, is how do you view the current state of globalization? Do you think that structural forces like the pandemic, China-U.S. trade war and Russian invasion of Ukraine have led to a paradigmatic shift in international economic relations, or is this a continuation of trends that were previously apparent? Thank you for the question, which is an excellent one, of course. And in my team, Philip and I, we have actually been looking at this topic for quite a while. And actually, our conclusion is that the current slowdown in globalization or the phase of deglobalization, as someone called the phase that we are in, is actually not something very recent. It is a trend that, according to our work and looking at the data, actually started around the time of the 2008 financial crisis and represented basically a break from the previous period, which one can call hyperglobalization, which is basically the period starting the late 80s, it can continue for almost two decades, when globalization really accelerated dramatically. And this was largely due to, of course, the, I would say, historical change that we witnessed over that period. We should not forget that from the late 80s to the, until the great financial crisis, we had the two major events. The first one, of course, is the inclusion of China in the international trade system and the rise of China itself. And the second one is, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the further integration of another bloc, which until then was completely separated from the rest of the world. And in fact, what you see in the data, particularly with regards to international trade, is that since 2008, global trade in goods and services actually basically flattened. And this means that before international trade was growing faster than GDP, so the trade intensity in the world was increasing. Since then, more or less has been growing in line with the growth of, of the global product. The question is why these happened. And uh, I've you already identified some, uh, some drivers, for instance, increased the trade the protection, is at least in the last few years uh, since uh, the Trump administration was in power. But we believe that there are more deep uh, roots behind that. The first one is, of, is the changing structure of the global economy. And we identified some of them, for instance, the shift from tangible to intangible goods, both in terms of consumption and investment the shift from goods and commodity to services, and of course, in general, technological development. The example that we use in a recent paper was that in the past, when you want to listen to music, you go in a shop, you buy a DVD, which is probably was produced and manufactured in Asia. Now there is no more production of goods for listening to music. You just go on your telephone, you stream it, and you listen to it. So basically, there is no movement of goods and service. Now, this, uh, this is very important because uh, if uh, trade protectionism was not the only driver 
of the slowdown in globalization, but there were over drivers, the, the one that I mentioned, this also means that this is likely to continue. Even if in a sort of a more benign scenario, trade the protection should eventually fall over the next few years, this will, will not mean necessarily that international trade will go back to the globalization phase that we experienced before 2008. I think that's very important because it means that globalization should also be analyzed in these terms and not only from a purely policy perspective. Say that, no doubt that Trump and then, of course, uh, the war in Ukraine and also COVID all had a sort of impact in the sense that uh, they accelerated a trend which was already happening before. Great, thanks. So you mentioned a lot about trade. And actually, when people talk about globalization, there's global trade flows and also global financial flows that both come into play. You've written that we may be seeing a decoupling of these trends. Do you see that they're diverging? And what do you think are the key factors behind this structure or, or political? The view that we have is that basically globalization is a very broad term. In reality, there are different pillars. There is international trade. There is a movement of people, so immigration flows. There is, of course, capital, which is basically portfolio flow and foreign direct investment. And actually, you could, you could add a fourth pillar, which is data and information, which as well has become very, very important, particularly as we are moving into the era of data and digitization. If you look at the different pillars, so we already talked about international trade, what happened. If you look at immigration, of course, COVID has been a big factor, slowing down dramatically the movement of people one can eventually expect that this movement of people will resume, actually has already resumed. The question will be if we will go back to the level that we had before COVID. But if you look at the financial globalization, this has been one of the pillars which has actually has held up pretty well. There was a significant slowdown in financial integration since 2008 following the great financial crisis. But this was largely due to two factors. First of all, was the slowdown in financial integration within the euro area. You might remember the big institution, for instance, withdrawing from Central Eastern Europe. And to a large extent, this was a policy-driven type of trend because simply the new regulation which have been imposed on banks, so the reduction of risk and the size of the balance sheet, of course, involved that many banks withdrew from foreign jurisdiction. This was particularly acute in Europe. But if you look at instead the overall trends, like for instance, the portfolio flows and the foreign direct investment, actually these two flows have held up pretty well also after the great financial crisis. It is true that we saw, of course, a slowdown during COVID, but already if you look at after COVID, so once the Western economy reopened, there was definitely the trend that restarted pretty well. Now, of course, we are living a period of a cyclical weakness with all this happening in terms of global markets. So you might see a slowdown in portfolio flows, for instance, into emerging market, but this is not unusual for this type of flow. So overall, so far, despite the growing protectionism, despite the stronger rhetoric that we hear about globalization on the policy level, we have not seen the same slowdown in financial globalization that we witness in the area of international trade. And this is very important because, uh, as I said, in international trade, there are probably structural factors at play. This structure, the structural factor concerning financial globalization, which is the internationalization of the portfolio of institutional and retail investor, think about the share of foreign investment in pension funds around the world, these, uh, these structural factors are still there. 
of course, the big question is whether policy could change this trend and eventually also slow down significantly in financial globalization, as has been the case for international trade. And you spoke about the tensions between China and the U.S., particularly the trade war, a bit. But what do FDI flows look like between China and the West, as this is seen as a kind of litmus test of the state of financial globalization? Apart from the disruptions, of course, from the COVID pandemic, what trends are we seeing there? And uh, what do you think this means for globalization of finance more broadly? Well, of course, the, the, what happened between China and the U.S. is uh, is fundamental. I mean, in our view is that this is this is the China confrontation and the way it will develop in the future will be one of the most important factors, not only, of course, for globalization, but I would say in general for the future of the world at any level. And, uh, and also because China, of course, is very big and China has, has attracted a lot of foreign direct investment uh, over the last few decades. This is, of course, in line with internationalization of value chain of corporates. China has been one of the main beneficiaries of this trend when the big Western corporation move part or all, in some cases, of their production into, into China. And actually, so what happened here is, uh, will the, I think, will have a big impact on the overall global trend of financial globalization. I mean, we look at the data for 2022 and together with Philip, and year to date, it looks like that the foreign flows China have held up pretty well. In some cases, they've been going up. There are, of course, some particular factors, like, for instance, is the flows that from Hong Kong and from offshore financial center, which, of course, are linked to what's happening in mainline China, which also, uh, of course, are in included uh, into the overall flow of China. But overall, uh, this is definitely we are not seeing yet in the data a uh, substantial uh, slowdown. So this is remarkable. And I think it reflects two reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, we, we, there is a lot of talking about reonshoring uh, and, of course, uh, moving part of the production towards over economies, maybe because they are more uh, close to the border or has a politician in the US defined the friendly onshoring, so towards countries which are perceived as more friendly. But in reality, we believe that this is a trend which will take time to materialize, reorganizing international value chain, moving parts of the production from China to over jurisdiction is definitely a long process. And I'm not saying that this process will not continue, but so far, we are just at the beginning. So I don't think this is completely yet very visible in the data. The second reason, I think it is even more interesting. If you look at financial institutions, but I would say the corporate world in general, of course, the corporate world look at the geopolitics and look at what's going on on the political arena. I think there is still a prevailing view that ultimately it will be very unlikely that a country of the size of China we should not forget the size of the GDP, but also the size of the population. It appears very unlikely that we are really moving into a sort of a new Cold War, where by Cold War, I mean two blocks which do not interact very much between them. So that's something very interesting that, of course, needs to be taken into account. Of course, there are sectors where we see more dynamism in terms of these trends of moving parts of the production or parts of the value chain into more friendly countries. This is visible in the data. So it might well be that corporates are starting to diversify more in the sense that before, if they were 100% reliant on China, maybe if they look forward and given the uncertainty on the geopolitical level, they think, well, 
actually having maybe one or two or three countries where uh, my value chain can be activated in case of need is a good risk management, uh, which I would say is very similar to the concept of diversification in financial market, right? You don't put all your eggs in one basket. I think we might see a little bit of that as well on the, on the, on the real economy side. But I believe that overall, uh, there is a view that we are not yet in this uh, sort of a Cold War scenario of a total separation. Sectors which are impacted more directly and more heavily, of course, are the most sensitive one. We think about what's happening in, in sector like technology. I was reading the news just in the last few days of German government stopping a Chinese investment in acquiring a strategic stake into a semiconductor company in Germany. I think we're going to see more of that. But the question I think which is still open is to what extent what's happening in certain sensitive sectors like technology will eventually spread to over less sensitive sector because this will be, of course, uh, largely policy driven rather than justified by the geopolitical tension existing at the moment. Great. Yeah. You spoke about the perceived risk or risk uh, involved with investment into China or by Chinese investors, but I wonder if you could speak a bit about what U.S. and Western weaponization of finance means for global investment and how are investors or asset owners responding to this over the short term? and what you anticipate longer term? I mean, this is a topic that we have been looking very closely for two reasons. First of all, as you know, in, our team is mainly involved with sovereign institutions globally. So reserve managers, central banks, and managing foreign exchange reserve and the sovereign wealth funds. And particularly for central banks, uh, a big event which has been happening during the year following the invasion of Russia in Ukraine has been the sanction which has been launched against the Central Bank of Russia. It is not unprecedented in the sense that already in the past we had some similar measure against specific central banks. I think Iran is one of them. There are a few African countries as well. But let's say, given the size of the Russian central banks in terms of reserve, and also given the standing, I would say, of the central bank of Russia in the world of, the, of global central banking, this is definitely was unprecedented and, of course, attracted the attention of, of the central bank's community. That's why we decided this year, when we ran our survey, the UBS Reserve Management Survey that we run every year before our annual conference, we had a special section on sanction. And we asked a question about this to this institution, to our clients. And that what came out is that when we ask particularly whether this event of the sanction against the Central Bank of Russia means that we'll have, or we'll have a big impact on foreign exchange reserve. Actually, the picture were mixed. According to about 50%, they thought that uh, they will have a relatively small impact. Then in another 10% instead expected a, a significant impact. And what also is very interesting that came out is uh, whether other central banks could eventually be targeted in the future with similar uh, type of, of measure. And actually only about a third thought this could be the case, but actually more than 70% did not think that this is the case. So this means that if I pull this number into a context that the majority of central banks at the moment believe that this measure were in some way really peculiar to the situation, to an unprecedented event, which has been, of course, the events unfolding in Ukraine, but they are unlikely to be repeated in the future, or at least with the same force and with the same application, like has been the case in the Central Bank of Russia. What I think is interesting, we ask questions instead, 
when you think about the implication for the future of research management, we went a little bit more granular. We asked a question about, for instance, what would be the impact on the role of the US dollar or on the rising role of the RMB. Also here, about the picture is a little bit mixed. About 60% expected, let's say, little no impact, for instance, in terms of the role of the dollar, while instead a significant percentage thinks that the RMB ultimately might benefit from this event concerning the Central Bank of Russia. This is very interesting because, as you know, the RMB has been on a steady sort of path of increasing its share of global reserve. And this path for us at the moment is continuing. Maybe I can add something a little bit more recent. I was recently at the IMF World Bank meeting in Washington, D.C. We met with the more than 40 central banks from around the world. And of course, there was always a conversation about the RMB. And so we're talking about a few weeks ago, in the middle of October. So well, uh, much later than the May when we did our survey. So the war has already been ongoing for quite a while. That we didn't perceive any sort of uh, concern with regards to the RMB in terms, for instance, of country reducing or slowing down their appetite for RMB fixed income. What I think concerns reserve manager more is a little bit more what's happening in the global market. Think about the interest rate differential between RMB and US dollar or the current macroeconomic uncertainties still surrounding China. But uh, let's say we did not perceive any significant change in the transit over a higher share of reserve into RMB. So I would expect the steady rise of the RMB to continue unless, of course, uh, events change in a different direction. If, if I may add here, we, we actually specifically asked the question, so which reserve currency is likely to benefit if we get this shift towards a more multipolar world? And here actually 81% think that it would be the RMB, only 46% think that it is that it is the dollar. And we also asked if the, the appetite for Chinese fixed income is actually still unbroken. And actually, yes, 70% of survey participants actually said that they, their interest in, in Chinese fixed income is, is unchanged and only only for 17% it decreased. Yeah, interesting. It seems like fragmentation is leading to even more diversification at the same time. My final question is, given all of the factors that you've discussed here, Max and Philip, where do we go from here? What is the future of uh, globalization? Well, it's a $1 million question, right? And I think it's uh, we are very passionate about this topic because uh, globalization is one of these topics that has all the dimensions that make it very exciting, the economics, the political side. And also, I would say that every man look at globalization nowadays and wonder what are the benefits, what are the costs of this uh, trend, which has been definitely uh, the defining trend over the last 30 years. I would say that, uh, first of all, uh, it's pretty clear that we, there is a slowdown in globalization. Now, are we already in a phase of deglobalization? So far, the data say that we are still in a slowdown, not in a sort of a reversal of this trend. So from, uh, if you want to take a little bit of an historical perspective, probably the right comparison, uh, and you hear that very often when you read papers or, or you hear commentators talking about globalization, Normally, the comparison is always done with the interwar period, which was really a period of total reversal in globalization. In reality, if you look at the data, so the stagnation of international trade, the still relatively resilient global capital flows, probably the best period to compare with is the 1970s, when actually there was a slowdown exactly as we are experiencing now. It is also very well possible that after the hyper-globalization period, 
this uh, sort of slowdown was in a way physiological and reflecting what I mentioned to you as the ongoing structural change in the global economy that, that I mentioned to you before. So with regards to financial globalization, uh, definitely there is a risk and that if geopolitical tension further escalate, if we are seeing a really a fully-fledged US-China confrontation at multiple level, not only political and financial, eventually over the next, uh, over the years as well, a military one, I think probably we would actually have an impact on, on financial globalization as well, together, of course, with all the other pillars of uh, globalization that I mentioned to you before. However, if we do not face this escalation, instead we are going to be in a world where the US-China confrontation will take place at multiple level, maybe it will be stronger in sector like technology, but it will still China and US will remain linked in other parts of the economic sector, for instance, in the traditional manufacturing one, in green technology, et cetera. I think it is also very possible that we are just going to see a slowdown, but not a significant reversal. Maybe the final point, uh, Philip mentioned the multipolar system. In reality, the multipolar system was a trend that was gradually happening uh, anyway, even before the US-China confrontation uh, started and uh, reinforced. We should not forget the US dollar share has been of global reserve, for instance, has been on a declining trend already for many years now. So in our view, when I was asked by central banks, where do you see the share of US dollar down the road? I would not have been surprised if this would go down to around 50% over the next decade, which is, would be in line with the rise of emerging market and China in particular in terms of their size in the global economy. The question is how policy will develop. Policy can be an enhancer of this trend and dramatically accelerate, or it can be a facilitator or in some way of that trend. So from that point of view, I think we are definitely facing different scenarios, but we are still believe that the scenario of uh, multipolarity, more fragmentation, particularly within certain sector, uh, for us, seems the most likely at the moment. And Philip, please jump in also to give your perspective on that uh, for the conclusion. Well, I think it is, as you said, it is basically a repeat what you already said after the, the COVID crisis, which that it accelerated trends that already existed before. And the same we are now also seeing with, with Russia and what's going on between the US and China. Maybe a final point, I just, I just put it on to conclude. I am, I'm actually preparing something else if, on this topic. And I was given this title about the globalization, the resilience of the globalization. And this made me think about the concept of resilience, which is very often mentioned as the factor which is slowing down globalization. You want to have more resilient international value chain, et cetera, et cetera. This is a, there is a big question, which I think sometimes is forgotten, which is that there is a trade-off between efficiency and resilience. There is no doubt that if policy and political leaders continue pushing on slowing down globalization on ideological and geopolitical grounds, this will ultimately will come at a cost in terms of efficiency overall in the global economy. As we're living in a world where we desperately need an acceleration in productivity to make growth in the future more sustainable, that's something which, if you remember well, was missing already for many, many years, despite all the technological development that we see around us, I think it would be a pity because, of course, this would make it much more difficult to deal with other challenge that we have in the global economy. Think about what's happening in the area of the transition, energy transition, which will have a cost for the global economy, but as well as the impact of technology on labor, et cetera. I've, I believe that's something that sometimes is a little bit neglected because this trade-off 
could become larger if we really move into a less global world going forward. Yeah, definitely sounds like policymakers, politicians, and private market actors alike will need to keep this trade-off between efficiency and resiliency in mind going forward. Thank you so much, Max and Philip. It's been a pleasure. And thank you as well to our listeners. For more on the analysis of geopolitical risks to international trade and financial flows, be sure to check out their Autumn Bulletin piece, From Globalization to Deglobalization, which can be found on the OMFIF website. And also be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever podcasts are available. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast.